Today's the first Sunday in June. That means that uh, for all intents and purposes, summer has arrived in Alaska. I feel like it sort of showed up a month early this time. I don't know if you guys feel that way. I was at Lowe's yesterday. I had to get a couple of spare house keys made and pretty much everybody in all the checkout lines had at least one box fan under their arm. I don't know if you guys, you remember, you remember a year ago on Craigslist when box fans were like more than $100 each when it was like 90 degrees in August? Maybe you don't remember that. Maybe you don't look, go on Craigslist. I go on Craigslist and I saw that that was happening. So now might be the time to invest in box fans. If you didn't know that, you may be able to turn a profit later on. Um, last week we finished our final spring series for the year. Uh, we worked through a 10-week series on the way of Jesus, trying to understand what did Jesus mean when he said to the first disciples, follow me, and how do we follow in that example? And, and is it possible that some of the systems and structures that we've created maybe aren't actually moving us toward that objective? Maybe they're doing something else, and it might be time to sort of reconsider what would move us toward that objective of actually following Jesus. And so we've been discussing that a little bit. If you missed that series, even if you missed one of those messages, you don't have to do this, but if you'd like, we have all of those on our website available for you. That's going to be a foundational, sort of a 101, if you will, uh, series as far as where we're headed as a church for the next few years. We'll begin our first series in spiritual practice in the fall, in September, and uh, we'll work through silence and solitude. But at that point, I'm going to be assuming that you sort of have a working knowledge of some of the terms and ideas that we worked through across the last 10 weeks. With that series being done, today marks the beginning of a new series. Today we'll start a series, just a four-parter, something short, called One Body, One Spirit. And this is going to essentially be a redux, sort of a remix of part of a sermon series that we preached a couple of years ago. In 2020, before the pandemic arrived, God led our elders to believe that unity was going to be really important. We didn't know why. We could not have anticipated how important that unity would be as we navigated really challenging circumstances through the pandemic. Uh, but we preached through the whole book of Ephesians. And when we were in Ephesians 4, there was a lot of fruit that was born in our congregation. Just a lot of people being willing to make peace with others and to deal with wrongs that had been done to them. And so originally, we planned for this Sunday to be the first Sunday where the two campuses would come together and that we would be meeting all of June and July. Obviously, uh, as soon as we started demolition on the stage in the East Campus, we had to accelerate that timeline by a few weeks. But our goal today is simply to understand that in Christ, we have unity. It's available to us. You could argue that it's actually required of us if we want to be effective when it comes to ministry. Our goal today and the remainder of June is simply to understand what that means. What does the Apostle Paul think that it means when he's teaching a brand new church plant in the city of Ephesus? What does Jesus seem to think that that means when he communicates to his disciples how they ought to be, how they ought to act, how they ought to pray? We're just going to go to the source material every week for the next, today and the next three weeks, and we're just going to try to understand if we intend a blended church that was two churches a year ago who didn't even know each other's names, if we intend to truly live as one, not just be one legally or be one because we had a vote, but live as one, Jesus must do something because we're not gonna get there on our own. You and I don't naturally unify. We divide and divide and divide and divide, and we only wanna be with people who are just like us, and thankfully, Jesus is smarter than we are, and so he builds local churches full of people that wouldn't normally get along or have anything else in common, but that means that there is a little bit of hard work for us to do if we're going to unify. So you guys are in Ephesians 4, that's good. You can keep a finger there if you want and go back to Matthew 6 if you want to. I just want to quickly read a few verses for you from Matthew 6. I've got them on the screen if you don't have time to get there before I start reading. In Matthew 6, Jesus is right in the middle of arguably his most important, maybe his most famous teaching. It's a sermon that he gave. A group of people were gathered up on a hillside. He was standing below them and speaking. 
the whole sermon probably took him 45 minutes to an hour, depending on if he got questions. We don't get that Q&A in the Bible, but it could have happened. We don't know. Uh, Matthew 6 is right in the middle, and Jesus has just been giving people new sets of ways to live. He's been saying, you've heard it said, in other words, the way you were raised, your parents told you, the culture has said, uh, you know, you ought not murder anybody. Well, that's true, but I'm here to tell you, Jesus is speaking, I'm here to tell you that even wanting to kill somebody or saying that you would if you could get away with it, it's just as bad. And people in the audience are going, whoa, what does this mean? We've never heard anything like this before. It's offensive, it's countercultural to where they come from. And so in the middle of that teaching, Jesus decides to instruct people in how they ought to speak to God. Jesus uses the Father, that's his word when he talks about who God is. Uh, He's talking about God the Father when he says that. And Jesus instructs them. He says this in verse 9 of Matthew 6. He says, pray like this. Say things like, our Father in heaven, let your name be treated with reverence. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on the earth in the same way that it is done in heaven. Give us today the bread that we need for tomorrow and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's a pretty big assumption, huh? We'll talk about that in a minute. And lead us not into temptation, but instead deliver us from the evil one. Look back at verse 10 if you would. I'm going to ask you to do something we don't normally do together, but I think it's important. I'm going to ask you to read this out loud with me, please, slowly. I have a slide for you that's just verse 10 to make it easy. Let's read this and think about the words as we say this together. You ready? Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth in the same way that it is done in heaven. Yes. What an interesting idea. Not just a new will, not a will that's unique to my circumstances, though I pray that way a lot, Uh, not a will that necessarily gives me everything that I want, not a will that makes a lot of sense to the world that I'm in. God, may the standard for your will on earth be uniquely and only and singularly the way that you are in the heavenly places. In other words, God, would you be here who you are there? Would you make yourself real to us? Don't warp yourself, don't change yourself, don't change your plans, but bring that dominion to us. Now, if you paid attention the last 10 weeks, you understand that the arrival of the kingdom of God is a major theme in Jesus' teaching. You could argue that it's maybe the most prominent theme, that the kingdom of God, beginning in the very first chapter of the book of Mark, as Jesus arrives on the ministry scene, the kingdom of God is what Jesus proclaims. He says the good news is this, that the kingdom of God has come near, it's at hand, it's within reach of you. Jesus recommends that if you're going to talk to God at all, that this be part of what you say to him, that you would align yourself with your rabbi Jesus and communicate to God the Father, my will, God, is that your kingdom would arrive fully, that you would continue to put your kingdom in arm's reach, that you would continue to put your kingdom in a place where people can reach out and grab it and participate and jump in and choose to be a part of what you're doing. Asking God to bring his kingdom to earth in the sense that God's effective will would work itself out in action, in the real lives of real people like you and I, not theoretically. Now let me ask you, if that happened, if we all prayed that prayer, just God, would, you, would your effective will come to the earth? Would you transform the world, people, systems, institutions? If God answered that prayer by bringing our planet fully into the scope of his will in a way that the earth was made more and more like God's eternal dwelling place, which I, I would argue is God's will to do that, how would that change our experience as local church members? Because I think it would. I think, first of all, we would care a lot more about Jesus and we would care about almost nothing else. We would care about almost no one else, not in the sense that we would be calloused or unkind, but that anxiety that you feel when you wonder if somebody doesn't like you, I think a lot of that would go away. 
that worry that you have about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next time you have to visit the doctor or when that diagnosis gets fully explained on the phone call from your, your specialist. I mean, I think a lot of those things would start to dissipate because our eyes would be fixed on Jesus. We would understand that he's the only way that that kingdom comes to the earth. And so if that's really our will, that God's dominion arrive where we live, we would become solely fixated on the person and work of Jesus. And then if in that new world, Jesus were to say something like, I don't know, leave the church service if you have to, to go make peace with somebody that you've wronged, we would actually see people actually do that. Like, like our church service would be full of dozens, I think I know you well enough to say that, dozens of people who would need to get up in worship and walk to their car and drive across town to go visit their coworker or their spouse who wouldn't come to church today because they're so mad at, at, at them or their children need to get a phone call from a mom or a dad who've wronged them. We might actually take Jesus at his word. If we were people who were praying that his will would come, when it arrives, we would say, good, yes, right, finally, instead of saying, wait, what, me, now, no, no. Or if Jesus said something absolutely insane, like, I don't know, treat other people how you'd like to be treated, right, go figure. What if he said something like that and we actually took him seriously? Would there not instantly be a global movement of people who called themselves Christians who were marked by kindness, who were marked by generosity, respect for other people, patience, we might actually do the things that Jesus actually said to do if our desire was for his kingdom to come to the earth. But although those sort of hypothetical commands I just gave you actually came right from this same sermon, right out of Jesus' mouth, we live in a world where people who claim Christ are just as likely to be marked by malice, by spite, by anger, fear, anxiety, lust, retaliation, just as likely to be marked by that as those who don't. So what does that mean? Well, Pastor Francis Chan wrote a great book called Until Unity, and he says this. It's a longer quote, but I think it's worth sharing the whole thing with you. He says, when Christians gather today, they boast about their favorite teacher. They boast about how well he or she explains the word. They talk about churches, worship bands, schools, theologians, books, songs, denominations, ministries, political issues, social issues, pastors, singers, and so on. Inevitably, Disagreements arise about who is most accurate, who is most anointed or intelligent or wise. Once you pick your favorite leader, then you head to the island where everyone worships him or her. Of course, not literally, but you know, this is an analogy. Suddenly, you feel unity again because you surround yourself with people who agree with you regarding your leader, regarding your theology. You agree on the strength of your leader. You agree also on the weaknesses of the other camps. As long as you stay on your island, there's harmony at least until someone on the island comes up with a new idea and then rallies his or her own crew to head off to another island. Seriously consider what would happen if we could have a reset, if we could start over. This time around, all of us who call ourselves Christians would promise to boast in no one except Jesus. And then every time we get together, we would spend time boasting about him, sharing stories of his goodness toward us. This doesn't mean disagreements won't still come up, but they won't be the centerpiece. We won't be bragging about ourselves or our possessions or our knowledge or our achievements or anyone else's. We will spend our days boasting of the infinite grace of God and listening to others do the same. Boasting of the infinite grace of God and listening to others do the same. That is what we are asking for when we pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth in the same way that it is done in heaven. In heaven, no one boasts unless they boast in Christ. They don't have anything else to talk about. In heaven, the praise and worship revolves around God's goodness toward us. In heaven, they spend their days boasting of the infinite grace of God and listening to each other do the same. 
The bad news for you and I is we've not arrived there yet, have we? That's not necessarily true of all of our local churches everywhere. It may not even be true of this local church all the time. We ought to be honest with each other about that. We have not achieved that kind of heavenly unified worship, but the good news is that the kingdom of that unity, the kingdom of God, that kingdom of reconciliation has actually come down to us instead of us working our way to it. It's been offered to you and I. This is why the good news is good news, because Without debate, that idea is amazing. To be with people who agree with you about the most important thing in your life all of the time would be fabulous. It would be relief. It would be an oasis in the desert of the world that you and I live in. And yet we will never work our way there. We just can't agree long enough. When Jesus arrives in Mark 1 and he throws his hands out and he says, hey everybody, good news. The kingdom is close. It's here. It has arrived He's not here to deliver a bunch of new treatises signed by some angry king in heaven who demands your obedience or else. He is communicating to you the thing that you would like is available. I brought it with me. It's right here. You can have it. Would you like to get along with everybody? Would you like to get rid of the problems that you have? Would you like to heal from the wounds that you're carrying? Come on in. It's wide open. That's the good news. And so Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's within reach. In Jesus, as we follow him then, we can have unity. And I would argue we can't find it anywhere else. I don't think you'll get it anywhere else. I think Francis Chan is exactly right. Anything that feels like unity is really just you and your little slice of culture in the echo chamber that you enjoy living in with people who think just like you and talk just like you and buy all the same stuff you buy and listen to all the same political talking heads that you appreciate and retweet and post on your Facebook. But that's not really unity. That's just finding a tribe that's enough like you that they don't want to cut your head off, which is better than not, certainly, but it's not unity. Unity is more beautiful than that. Unity is probably so different from that that most of us can't really comprehend it. If you're like me, even the church I grew up in, which was a great church, it was successful by many metrics, it was not a unified church. It was not marked by this kind of behavior, this kind of attitude at all. Some of us may have been taught by example that this will not actually ever happen on this side of eternity, and yet... The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he says this in chapter 4. Think of it this way. He says, I therefore am a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you, you Ephesian Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, how do I do that, Paul? Great, I'll tell you. Verse 2, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, you won't achieve this unity by going to war with other people, not even ideological war, not even cultural war, and it's unity to be maintained, not to be created. It's been given to you. You just have to take enough care of it that it doesn't shatter and explode, which it can do when people get in the way. Verse 4, there is one body, and there is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, One baptism that you saw this morning, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is language that Jesus used when he walked the earth. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, it says, he's quoting from the Psalms, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he also gave gifts to men. And then Paul explains, in saying he ascended, what could it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions which are the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So here's what I know about unity. Unity is about interaction. If I don't ever talk to anybody else, I don't need unity. If I'm the only Christian in the world, there is no unity. There's just me. I'm the Christian, and I better get it right, or I don't know what happens. 
But for you and I, when we're at church, when we're in our homes, when we're online, when we're texting, when we're emailing, etc., this is the place where unity will show up or it won't. We can talk about unity. We can tell our friends that don't go to church, my church is unified. But the way that somebody will know, the litmus test, if you will, will be whether or not you and I live like we are one. Like we're an organism. The most common analogy in the New Testament for the body of Christ is a physical body. That's why Paul is reiterating it here in chapter 4. One body, many parts, many members. We ought not divide that. We ought not decide that we know better than God, that we shouldn't be unified, that we should separate over secondary or tertiary issues. We should stick together as much as we possibly can. As we discussed a few weeks ago when we talked about the idea of community, you and, you and I excuse me, end up inheriting each other from Jesus, right? That's how community is built. We don't just get to pick our favorite people, drag them to church, hope they get converted, and then hang out with awesome Christian people that we already liked before they were Christians. We get plugged into community with groups of people who have nothing in common with us, who might even be our opponents in certain ideological arenas, certain political, social arenas. And yet, because Christ has told us that we are his, that means we also belong to each other. That's the beginning of unity is understanding it's Jesus' business. Unity is, according to verses one and two of what we just read, built on a foundation of three things, of humility, of gentleness, and of patience. Unity is about you and I finding ways to be more in tune with each other as a result of all following the same rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. So when you think of unity, it may help you, if you think in pictures like I do, to actually picture yourself standing in this room three feet across from another person who's in this room having a real-life conversation. If we don't picture that in our heads, I don't think our concept of unity is very valuable. If the rubber never meets the road, what good is this teaching for us, okay? Inevitably, regardless of who that person is, even if their spouse, even if they're your spouse, maybe especially if they're your spouse, you'll disagree with them. Doesn't matter how many Sundays in a row you say, hi, how are you? And they say, fine, how are you? And you say, fine, and then you walk away. Eventually, one of you will tell the truth and the other person won't like it very much. And then you'll have to figure out, what do we do now? Do I never go back to that church again? Do I have to always be embarrassed? How will I unify? How will I do what Jesus has called me to do and live according to the grace and mercy that he's given to me? People in this room will hurt you, church, if they haven't already. People in this room may need to sometimes speak a hard truth to you, and you may need to have a hard truth spoken to you from time to time. Humility and gentleness and patience teach us how to have those conversations. The conversations that set our Christian relationships apart from the skin-deep, frivolous, or even sometimes dishonest relationships that we have out there in the world. In those conversations, the ones believer to believer, church member to church member, apprentice to apprentice, unity takes an active role in the form of humility, gentleness, and patience. So I have just three quick concepts for you. If you want to take some notes, I think these will help kind of guide you for the next month or so. If you are new to being an apprentice of Jesus, these are great practical things to be praying about, asking God to build these things into your life. The first idea is this. Humility teaches you and I what needs to be said to one another and what doesn't. Yes, humility teaches us what needs to be said and what doesn't. When I'm humble, I see myself the right way. Humility is not a false sense of self. It's not passivity. It's not me just keeping my mouth shut so I don't make other people mad. It's keeping my mouth shut because I realize I don't have anything to say. This isn't about me. I'm not the point. I'm not the focus. It's seeing myself rightly in light of who God is. And you can't do it. You just really can't have humility if you don't know God personally. So humility teaches me when I have to have a conversation with another person that the Bible has just told me I have unity with, one Lord, one spirit, one body, all that stuff, Humility teaches me, what do I need to say to this person? And what shouldn't I? 
Where should my slights and my offenses and the things that bug me not cause me to have to disrupt this relationship? And where have I been sinned against and I owe it to my brother or sister to be clear with them? The second point is this. Gentleness teaches us how to say what needs to be said. So humility tells me, should I say it or not? Gentleness helps with the delivery, the presentation, to not rough somebody up, to not bully them, to never coerce them, to not want to force them to believe something or change something or be a certain way against their will, but to just present truth as truth, to be kind, to think about my face, to think about my posture, to think about my body language and my tone and the speed of my delivery and the point in conversation where I want to insert that. If I'm gentle, I care about the person, not just the conflict. Gentleness helps me with that. Third, patience teaches us when to say what needs to be said. If I'm humble, I know what to say. If I'm gentle, I know how to say it. And if I'm patient, I'll wait until the right time. And the right time might be never, just so you know. You might write that in if you're a person who loves to just confront people with the truth and then call it love. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe give it a week and see if you're still mad. A great rule of thumb in any interpersonal conflict is to sleep on it one time and see if you still care. (laughs) Eat a meal, get some sunlight, take a walk take a nap, and then see how mad you are. And maybe that'll help, right? Maybe there's still an issue that needs to be addressed, and you ought to follow through on that. But patience will help you say that thing that you feel burning in you at the time that is most appropriate. This is why and how these things contribute to unity for us. It stands to reason, then, that when unity is missing in the local church, what we need to cultivate is not this theoretical idea that we might call unity, We can't just have a bunch of sermons in a row where somebody shouts at us that we're bad because we're disunified and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Unity is one of those things that I don't think you can approach directly. You approach it indirectly by approaching humility, gentleness, and patience. You bring humility within the scope of your capacity by doing what you can do now, which is practicing humility, practicing gentleness, and practicing patience. Like much of the way of Jesus, the direct goal has to be approached indirectly. We need humility, church, because we need to learn to restrain our sense of entitlement. We need the humility to submit to one another out of respect in order to promote each other's best interests. We need gentleness because we need to deal with each other in a way that doesn't rough each other up. We need empathy. We need compassion. We need to choose to never bully anybody into doing the right thing. Gentleness can be clear and urgent, but gentleness is never coercive, and gentleness is never demanding. We need patience to suffer well over a long period of time, to suffer through each other's quirks, to suffer through each other's idiosyncrasies, sometimes for decades without complaining. What if God keeps you in this church for 60 years and that same person comes up every Sunday and asks you the same questions about the same stuff that you've never had the heart to tell them you don't really care about, right? You accidentally brought up soccer one time in a conversation, and now they're trying to give you soccer jerseys and take you to soccer games, and they're trying to love you the way that they know how, but it drives you crazy. What do you do with that? Where do you take that? You have a Lord, a Jesus, a rabbi, who was followed by 12 of the hardest to be around men in human history. He gets it, okay? He had guys drawing swords at dinner parties to try to protect him, and he was like, this can't keep happening. We have to talk about this, Peter. This isn't going well. He had a guy named Simon the Zealot. Zealot means that he carried a knife around, hoping to slit the throat of any Roman centurion that he could. And more than once, Jesus encounters a Roman centurion. If you think there wasn't tension, as Jesus is talking to this guy and watching Simon slip around the outside of the conversation, out of the corner of his eye, smiling with his hand on his knife, That's not easy, okay? You can suffer through a 10-minute conversation about soccer or whatever. Or you can sit by that same person at life group who grinds your gears. A time may come to bring that up, but a time may never come to bring that up. 
And we have to be open to both. That's where the Spirit leads our lives, and we don't just try to make our will into God's will. We surrender our will and receive and exchange God's will, something new, something totally different, an entirely different way to see other people and to be human. Now, if unity feels to you today like it's unattainable, it's impossible, it's a fairy tale or a pipe dream in this church or any other church, then I would argue just don't worry about that. Worry instead about the tools that make unity happen. Think about humility. Think about gentleness. Think about patience. These are the ways that we train our inner person to the point that humility and unity comes into the range of our spiritual capacity. In other words, if unity with the people in the seats around you today is incomprehensible, then we need the daily practices of humility. We need a daily practice of gentleness, a daily practice of patience, things that are well within our reach today. So if you will, set your mind and will on what you can do now. Humble yourself, and if you don't know how, pray that God will do it for you. It hurts worse when he does it, but it sticks longer. He's much better at it than we are. Try to embrace a gentle demeanor. Some of you, and I'm going to tip my hand here a little bit, probably men especially who have executive responsibilities in their professional worlds, you probably have a tendency to not be gentle. It's not efficient to be gentle. It doesn't move the ball. It doesn't get things done. It doesn't get people to answer that email that you've sent 65 times and nobody has answered you yet. Being stern, being domineering, being aggressive, being scary, for lack of a better word, gets things done at work, but it's not the way of Jesus. Over time, if you can do these things, if you can slow your inner pace, seeking to wait patiently for God's timing, what you cannot imagine now, true unity, will become more and more realistic. So pray this way. Learn from Jesus. Go back to Matthew 6 when Jesus says, when you pray, pray that God's kingdom would come. That's what you're praying for. You're praying that God would bring this reality about in his local church. And then when we leave from these kinds of settings where we're gathered all together, that we would take that kingdom with us. That we would lead other people to Jesus simply because they can't find humility, gentleness, patience, or unity anywhere else. What a great evangelistic opportunity if you want to put that sticker on it. A chance to say to the world, I found something and you're not going to find it anywhere else. This is why Jesus tells the great parable of the guy who finds the treasure hidden in the field. He sells everything that he has just to get the field so he can have the treasure. That's what it's like when you finally find in Jesus what you've been looking for everywhere else. We don't have to make big sweeping presentations, and this isn't even a sermon about evangelism. I'm just telling you, if you can present to the world a thing that they can't produce, that they have a hole in them that's desperate to find, they'll come on into the church. They will come to Jesus. They will find a way to get over their church hurt and their wounds and all the legitimate reasons they have to be wary of institutions and people with power, and they will come to Christ. The kindness of the Lord, his compassion, is what draws us in. So if you'll pray these things, if you'll practice these things, my commitment to you, I feel sure of this, is that Jesus will continue to use this giant mess of humanity that we call True North Church. He'll do this for us. He will unify us. He will be the glue. We ought not misunderstand the message today to mean that we have to white-knuckle our way into forcing something. Simply trust that this is an objective that matters to God and watch him do the work. Don't resist it, but you also don't have to run ahead of him and prove something by forcing something that's not real. I'll leave you with a quote from Dallas Willard that I want you to chew on this week because, of, of course, I will, right? You probably, we should probably put Dallas Willard on our website at some point, don't you think? <laughs> anyway, he says this in The Divine Conspiracy. I think it's helpful. He says, when Jesus directs us to pray, thy kingdom come, he does not mean that we should pray for it to come into existence. Rather, we pray for it to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded on earth as it is in heaven. With this prayer, we are invoking the kingdom as in faith we are acting 
the kingdom into the real world of our daily existence. That's what June is about for us. This June, this month, these four weeks is about us invoking unity in prayer and living unified in faith because that's what it will take. I can't give you a guarantee that everybody in here is gonna be nice to you, but I can promise you that it's the will of your rabbi that you find a way to gain unity. If we will do that, our reality will change and we will actually become one with one another. It is possible and we will get there either together or not at all. So I wanna pray that for you and invite you to pray with me and then we're gonna finish our time this morning in worship together. God, thank you for your word and the opportunity this morning to hear really moving testimony of how you have called and and brought into your church uh, a young man and a young woman. It's always a blessing to me, God. It's challenging in many ways to follow testimony with a sermon because I think that your word is proven true anytime we hear testimony of, of salvation. But I ask today that maybe that would be a jumping off point for us, that as we go home this week and we think about what we saw this morning and what we heard, uh, that you would just remind us more than once in the next seven days that there's value in being unified. This is not a single serving experience. This is not for us to sit in our own seat and never connect and never talk and never be open. So I pray, God, that you would bring unity about, that you would make this a reality for us, not because we worked really hard at it and finally got it right, but because you care about it and you did the work in us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.